Well, for decades, the Hawaiian community of Lahaina, Maui, was viewed as one of the most beautiful island paradises in the world. Known for its beautiful beaches, lush vegetation, towering palm trees, along with the gentle breezes that would move the aqua surf. It was, it's a, truly a paradise. And the town of Lahaina was a quaint town that welcomed thousands of tourists a year and was home to about 12,000 residents. But on August 8, hurricane force winds blew a brush fire into a raging inferno and it destroyed the whole town. The devastation of the fire killed almost 100 people, destroyed over 2,000 structures, and the estimated cost to rebuild is 5.5 billion and growing. Then there's the story of Ludwig von Beethoven, recognized as one of the greatest composers of all time. After his death, it was determined that the main cause of death was sclerosis of the liver due to over-drinking wine. But when science grew and they took toxicology tests of the hair that was preserved from him, they found that he had an uh, elevated amount of lead in his system. Apparently, back in his day, it was common to add lead to wine to give it more taste, a little bit more body. And so he would, every time he would drink wine, which he overdrank, he would add lead to it, and that would elevate the lead in his system. And of course, now we know that that's a very poisonous chemical to be in your body. And now we know that that was an explanation for his frequent ailments, ending up in him going deaf at the end of his musical career. I share these two illustrations to suggest that whether it be an island paradise or a musical genius, life is susceptible to various influences that may prove catastrophic in our lives. Some may be obvious, like a fire driven by 80 mile an hour winds. Some may be subtle, like a little lead added to a glass of wine every day. But both are equally devastating in a person's life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus motivates us to think about our lives and the condition of our hearts. And what is it that's really influencing our hearts? Because the condition and the intent and the thoughts of our heart ultimately drives who we are and what we're all about. Last week, Jesus calls us to a higher relational ethic than simply not to engage in murder. We got below the surface and we talked about anger. Today, we'll discuss his call to a higher sexual ethic than simply not to commit adultery. Rather, he calls us to a heart free from sexual lust. A heart free from obvious and overt lust, like a raging fire, but lust that appears harmless 
but which over time proves life-threatening, like adding lead to our wine. Let's see what Jesus says about this issue in the Sermon on the Mount, working through now. We are in chapter 5 of Matthew, and we begin with verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There we have Jesus getting down to the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Like he did in the passage we discussed last week, Jesus calls us to a standard of righteousness deeper than an outward behavior. Just because we might not actually commit the act of adultery, if we harbor sexual lust in our heart, God says we're just as guilty as if we had. Further, in addition to guilt before God's law, there are devastating consequences to the condition of our hearts. What could be a life that would be described as a paradise on earth could be reduced to rubble covered in ashes. And what could be a musical genius, a creative and inspiral life, inspirational life, could easily waste away to silence and eventual death, all because of sexual lust. <clears throat> what are we talking about here? Well, let me venture a definition. Sexual lust is the self-centered quest to satisfy one's own sexual desire by self-centered, selfish means. It's a drive for physical intimacy that is selfish. Sexual lust is self-focused, self-directed, oriented towards a selfish sexual goal. Now, the message of our culture says it's good and it's healthy to pursue those desires. All parties involved are just out for their own physical enjoyment. So go ahead and indulge. But I suggest that our culture is lying to us when it says that. When it says that it's good and healthy, the result is a proliferation of pornography, promiscuity, sexual dysfunction among men and women, among young men and young women. Jesus cuts through all the social commentary and gets right to the point when he says, get serious about this issue of sexual lust. So serious that he says, it's like gouging your eye out if it causes you to sin. Or like cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin. I don't think Jesus could paint the line more clearly. It's not it's time to declare, I'm not going to put up with this in my own life anymore. 
I'm going to cut a line and say, enough. But are we really serious when we say that? Um, I wonder. We know that we're hoping that something will happen that gives us a taste of that, even though we've said, I'm not going to do it. I repent of it. We may give up our porn websites, but we search for stories about Hollywood celebrities and hope there's a provocative picture. Or we give up R-rated movies, but then when we're, re when we're watching another movie, we hope that there's a scene that might give us just a taste. We haven't repented. We haven't said enough is enough. That taste grows into a longing, we're right back at it again. Sometimes we take steps to deal with the consequences of not getting caught, simply because we don't want to get caught. But then when the pressure wanes, we're right back at it. I would suggest this. I think we need to repent of our repentance. We need to repent that our repentance is really not repentance. We're not really serious. We're not really taking this, this issue as important and as, as critical and crucial as it really is. Jesus calls us to righteousness in our hearts. Oh, Scott, you're just being a prude. You know, Jesus, Jesus isn't a prude. Because he knows that what, what could turn into a raging fire sometimes starts with a little lead in our glass of wine over and over again. So I'd like to call us to get serious about this issue of sexual lust. But the Bible doesn't leave us defenseless. The Bible doesn't leave us helpless. The Bible gives us hope. So I'd like to outline three tools today that can help us deal with this issue of sexual lust. See, I don't think Jesus ever intended for us literally to say, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, because that's just outward, outward behavior. He's not interested in outward behavior. He's interested in our hearts. So here are three tools we can use to keep our hearts pure as we think about this issue which rages in our culture. First, understand sexual lust as it relates to temptation. There are two types of temptation I'm suggesting. One is temptation with no lust, which is no sin. The second is temptation that's driven by lust, which is sin. Now let's discuss each one of those together. First, temptation with no lust might be described as an interest with opportunity, but no sin. I have lots of interests. My interests are probably different from yours. Um, I'm interested in cars and music and fishing and golf. Uh, I'm interested in theology. And because I'm a normal man, um, I notice women. Uh, all day, 
every day, these interests simply bubble up, don't they? They just bubble up, catch my attention because I'm alive, because I have eyes and ears and I can see things and I can smell pizza. It makes me think about food. I, I smell homemade bread, and I think about Thanksgiving. And I, I have interests that, that just bubble up in my life. Now, these interests can become a temptation when they are accompanied with an opportunity, an interest plus an opportunity. If I see an ad on uh, TV about the newest uh, Ford F-150, <laughs> and, and then I see 1.9 financing, and I'm thinking, hmm, you see that interest, all of a sudden now there's an opportunity. But it's not sin unless there's lust. You see, an interest with opportunity is not necessarily Sin. But let's recognize that these temptations, interest with opportunity, are common to everybody. Even they were common to Jesus, right? Because the Bible says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, are just as we are, but yet without sin. See, Jesus had no evil desire. And therefore, when faced with an interest and an opportunity, he never sinned because he had no lust. See, that, that breaks down the issue to lust. We need to get a handle on this issue of lust if we want to live in this life and face interests without, with opportunity without falling into sin in our hearts, which brings us to the second issue temptation that is driven by lust, this is sin. Jesus teaches that even though one might not commit the act of adultery, gazing on a woman, if you're a man, gazing on a man, if you're a woman, with lust in your heart, you are as guilty as if you had committed adultery. Again, we learn that Jesus is concerned with our heart. Purity is more than outward behavior. It includes thoughts and intents of the heart. And an interest in the opposite sex could easily develop into sin if our evil desires, if our lust is unbridled, if we don't get a handle on it. When this evil desire prevails, Jesus says, you may as well have gone all the way. You're just as guilty as if you had. But I, I would suggest that this distinction between temptation where there is no sin and the sinfulness of an evil desire driven by lust is taught for us in James chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to James chapter 1. Let's see if this distinction that I just made is really scriptural. See if you can find him in these verses. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Jesus was God, right? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In this passage, James describes both of these types of temptation. First, temptation with no lust, verse 13. Even though Jesus was tempted just as we are, he had normal interest, opportunity. He did not have evil desire and lust, and so he did not sin. Then temptation that includes sinful lust, verse 14. The description here is one who is dragged away by evil desires, sexual lust. Lust that has taken us from temptation to temptation to sin. And Jesus says when that happens, you've already committed the sin. Now let me give us two clarifications about here. Number one. Normal sexual desire between a man and a woman in a married relationship is not sin. Sexuality was invented by God, intended to be an expression of his glory, and it's not dirty. It is not, if it's not misused, it is good and holy. It's something that God intended for us to have to be a sacred part of a marriage relationship. So make sure we don't misuse the words that Jesus here is saying about intimacy. But there's a second clarification that I want to make, and it's found for us in these verses from James. We must recognize that lust originates within us and is therefore our responsibility. It's on us. It's our responsibility. Lust originates within us. When each person is tempted, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Now, that pressure to take an interest to the next level is our responsibility. James says it's our own lust. And so here's my clarification. If you're married today... It is not your spouse's responsibility for you to remain pure. It's not your spouse's responsibility. Some men might say, well, if my wife was just a little bit more interested in intimacy, then I wouldn't have such a hard time with lust. Sorry, guys. It's your responsibility. Well, women might say, well, if, uh, if he would just treat me with a little bit more tenderness and show me a little bit more affection, I wouldn't be always thinking about and, and, and fantasizing about other men. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. Uh, when we desire that which is good, it can easily turn into an evil desire and enticement, and we can't blame someone else. But you know what? This is actually good news. It's good news because if we own up to the fact that it's our issue, we can do something about it. If it's our issue, we can deal with it. So sexual lust and temptation work together with these types of clarifications. So 
what do we do to deal with it? Well, it brings me to number second tool, also taken from James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by his own evil desire and enticed. Then, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Learn the life cycle of lust. Lust is the evil desire from within, but if it's just dormant, it won't stay dormant. It grows. If we open the door just a little bit, it grows. Let me give you an illustration um, of a true story of a woman who was a bank teller at, when my wife was a bank teller back in our early years in our marriage. And I'll let you make application to the subject we're talking about today. A bank teller handles thousands of dollars every day. And the opportunity to steal seems to be there every day. And the door is open. But there's no sin because there's no evil desire. But then that evil desire comes in and goes, hmm, boy, I'd, I'd sure like to have an extra 10 bucks this week. Now we've got the temptation with an evil desire. And she reasons, she knows the system. It's easy to get away with a quick 10 bucks. Um, let's just call it human error for the day and we'll all be okay. And, and then it moves to the next where it says it's enticement. And enticement uh, convinces her that, well, if I take a little bit more, I think I can get away with it. And so she devises a plan. And she's looking for an opportunity. I'll be ready. And then that takes her to the conception of sinful behavior. Burst forth. Monday seemed to be the best day of the week. So the first Monday of the month, slipped a $10 bill into her pocket. Nobody noticed. This is a true story. And then she got away with it, and then her sinful behavior matured. And she thought, wow, um, I've already begun. If I get caught, I'll get fired anyway, so I might as well go all in. So she took 20 bucks, and then she took 100 bucks. And then she took 200 bucks, and then she got caught. We always do. And death ensued, brought destruction. She lost her job, lost her reputation. She faced arrest, all because she didn't understand the path of lust, and she didn't stop at the beginning. See, I would suggest that if we learn this progression we can recognize when we're on it, and we can take steps to stop it. You say, oh, but I can't. I'm just not strong enough. I just can't stop it. You know what, folks? I suggest, yes, you can. This morning, when your alarm went off, you were nestled nice and cozy in your nice, warm bed. Every muscle in your body was relaxed. You were just so cozy in your bed, and everything in your body said, I'm not going to get up. It's cold. <laughs> but what did you do? You got up. You can do it. Don't tell me you can't do it. You can do it. But, you know, I don't really think we can do it alone. So that brings me to the third tool, 
and it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We can't do this alone, folks. I don't think that there's a verse in Scripture that's more clear. We need one another. Paul says in this verse, flee. That's a decisive action. You know what it means? Run! <laughs> Run! Don't think about it. Don't say, well, I think I'll do a Bible study on it. Don't say, well, I'll pray about it. Don't say, well, I'll do something about it after I have one more fling. Don't say, well, I'm going to get as close as I can with actually doing it. That's what people do out in Yellowstone National Park when they get trampled by a buffalo or a moose because they get too close and it turns into disaster. Oh, we just decide, I'm going to try to get just as close as I can without falling into it. Dangerous. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, run, now, run. Three prepositions. First, run from. Flee youthful passions. Now, this is an interesting term. Young men, this is what it means to grow up from a child to becoming a man. It means that you know the dangers of sexual lust and you run from it. That's what a man does. Young women, that's what a godly woman does. Recognizing it and running from it. And as soon as we realize we're progressing down that path, we turn away. It may mean literally run. But let me give you just some picture in your mind. <clears throat> Let's say you're walking and you want to change directions. If you're walking, you can stop, turn around, and go the other direction fairly easily. But let's say you're running and you're jogging and you feel like you want to stop and go the other direction. It takes longer to stop and it's harder to turn around and keep going the different direction. Let's say you're riding your bicycle and you're going 30 miles an hour down the street, down the road, and you think you realize you need to stop. It takes a long time to stop and it's even harder to stop. Turn your bicycle around and get going in the other direction. Let's say you're captain of an aircraft carrier. You want to stop that aircraft carrier and turn the other direction? Probably takes an hour and a half and 10 miles. Brothers and sisters, if we realize we're on this path, stop and run the other direction before it gets so hard that you might not be able to. The longer you let it go, the more difficult it'll be. Not impossible. It'll just be harder. Second preposition, run to. Paul says, pursue righteousness, faith, and peace. These words all remind us of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says in Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I don't want to be simplistic, but this is the key to all of righteous living. Learn what it means to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Learn to do what Paul says in Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you might say, well, that's theological. That, that's 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 big stuff. I don't know how to do that. Third preposition, run with. <laughs> run with. Paul says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. No verse in the Bible that is more clear on the benefit of genuine Christian fellowship and biblical community. Run with. You don't know how? You don't understand walking with the Spirit. You don't really grasp the idea of learning to desire God more than sin. Go to somebody who does know it. Attach yourself to somebody. Will you help me understand this? And let me say to those of you who have been walking with the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and you're in your group, you've got your friends, you meet together for Bible study and you talk about things and you're really comfortable. May I challenge you? Break away from your comfortable group and search out someone who needs to learn what you know. Just give them three months. Work with them for three months. Study the Bible with them. Pray with them. Teach them about the Holy Spirit. Teach them how to desire God. And then go back into your group and renew your friendships. You've just created a disciple who will then go out and create another disciple who will go out and do another disciple. Run with. Maybe you're here today. Um, give me two com a commercial for men. Um, there's a group that meets on Thursday night here at our building, and we get together and we talk about the struggles of men. When I was on the men's advance this year, every time I sat down at a table for a meal, I asked the guys around the, around the table, what's the number one issue facing men? Well, you know what they said. Without hesitating, it's sexual temptation. It's this issue of our culture is sexualized. If you're struggling in this, I invite you, come Thursday nights. No judgment. Everything is confidential. We accept each other. We love each other. And we help each other. We run with each other from and we equip each other on how to deal with this issue called sexual lust. Second commercial. <laughs> you know that I've been, been encouraging gentlemen to sign up with Ironman groups. Ironman groups for men also equips us to do this. Attach yourself to someone. Go find someone. Be an encouragement to somebody else. Because listen, there's a three-legged stool of sexual lust. Three-legged stool. It's accessible, it's affordable, and it's anonymous. You know what happens if you take out anonymous? There's only two legs. 
And what happens to a three-legged stool when you take out one of the legs? <laughs> That's the solution. Run with someone. Get together with someone. This is a battle we can win with God's help. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Of course, repent of your repentance if it's only shallow. But then, then get serious about this issue of sexual lust. You could be battling in a raging fire. There's some guys here today that it's just raging. And nobody knows. But you've got this, this struggle within you that's eating you alive. Or maybe there are some of you who are saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not all that bad, but, you know, I dabble in it here and I dabble in it here. It's going to catch up with you. It's time for us, as Jesus said, get serious with God. And you know where it starts? It starts with us, genuine repentance. It starts with us saying, okay, God, today I draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to do it anymore. I get serious with you. It's just as if I'm going to cut my eye out and cut my hand off. I'm serious now. And you know what God will do? He'll wrap his arms around you. He will meet you in your repentance, and he will begin to set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would get serious with you. We don't want to be a people who are just prudish. We want to be people who are righteous, whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who have pure hearts, not just controlled outward behaviors, but whose hearts that no one else sees except you and that we know are free. And so right now we come to the altar. Right now we declare to you, Lord, help me. Lord, I come to you. Lord, it's time for me to be serious. God, meet us in a very special way as we sing our last song. In Jesus' name, amen.